0: I'm the Reverend Kat Binakis, and this is the Holy Holy Podcast. In this season, we've been looking at economic and workforce issues in Chicago. Today's episode is the final installment, and we're talking about childcare. We begin by speaking with Ceci Nyman.
1: So my name is Ceci Nyman, and I'm the executive director of Everthrive Illinois. Everthrive Illinois is a nonprofit organization. We're in our 30th year here in Chicago. We work on statewide policy and advocacy in the areas of maternal and child health, adolescent health, immunization as a disease prevention strategy, and most importantly, and running through all of that, is really access to care for vulnerable low-income populations, particularly through the Medicaid program.
0: But actually, for this interview, I'm more interested in her immediate previous job. An organization called Illinois Action for Children, where
1: I was the vice president for policy. So for over 15 years, I was a leading advocate
0: and voice for the child care assistance program and recipients and users of that system. We began by talking about the Child Care and Development Block Grant. That's the primary support we have in the U.S. to help working families pay for child care through a provision in there called Child Care Assistance.
1: So the Child Care Assistance Program was a product of the the welfare reform back in 1996. And so there are some conditions in terms of how you're eligible for child care assistance, right? So you don't just get it um, because you're poor. The program that we have that's more like that is Head Start, right? That that is purely an income-based. Child care assistance is really meant to support the working families of America. And so it's a work support, but it really does provide us the best opportunity for early care and education. So to qualify for child care assistance, you have to be working. You have to be below 185% of federal poverty in the state of Illinois. Every state sets their own eligibility standards. That's what it currently is in Illinois. And every family pays a portion of the cost of care.
0: And in Illinois, that copay expectation is 10%. Right. So it's never free
1: for anybody. For some of the lowest income families, it might be a dollar a month. But every, every family pays a portion of the cost of care. So let's say for a family of four, um, 185% of federal poverty is about 45500 At that point, you would be paying about $385 a month in your copayment. And that's actually just over 10% of your income. So it's, it's about 10 and a quarter
0: It's worth interjecting here to say that Illinois is pretty generous in who qualifies for childcare assistance by putting the limit at one hundred and eighty five percent of the federal poverty rating. Each state sets its own limit and one hundred and eighty five percent of federal poverty isn't bad. The federal law itself limits the assistance to eighty five percent of state median income, which, depending on what source you look at, is about sixty one thousand dollars in Illinois. 85% 85% of that would be 51000 So Illinois could be somewhat more generous, but the grant contains a finite amount of money each year, and then it's gone. So in Illinois, 185% of federal poverty is what we have. And Illinois is also pretty flexible in how the money can be used. Illinois recipients can use the funds to pay for center-based care, a traditional daycare center, or home-based, licensed child care providers, or something called family-friend and neighbor care, where a neighbor or relative cares for the child. Well, we've seen a
1: decrease just because of the budget cuts and other changes, but it serves on average about 100 and
0: probably now 140,000 kids per month per year. If a household makes more than 185%, say as a household they make 50 grand, no,
1: no support, no assistance, no support. And it is that that kind of what we call the cliff, right? So what we see a lot in Illinois is that somebody gets a quarter raise or a 1% raise, and they suddenly make 45900 And they're just over the eligibility, but there's no way they can afford the cost of care. So in the city of Chicago, and I haven't seen the most recent numbers, but on average, infant care for for an infant or toddler can be $25,000 a year. I mean, if you make 45000 you can't pay $25,000 for child care. And so what we see then is you're kind of by hook or by crook, right? So you're not really engaging in a high quality early childhood setting. What you're doing is using one person one day. You're calling in sick the next. You have that instability of care, which is not good for the, for the child, nor is it good for your work career, right? If you have to stomach the whole cost of care, it is debilitating and low-income families cannot participate in in the kind of the kind of above the ground market so to speak
0: there must be some kinds of jobs that because of variable scheduling and shifts are, are just not available to parents of small children w- what are some of those jobs or fields that are pretty much off the table
1: you know the reality is is that increasingly we're a just in time workforce for low income for for, for low wage workers, right? So I should say that family, friend, and neighbor care is also the, the the care of choice for many families who need that level of flexibility and variability because because they are an auntie or a granny, that means that those child can sometimes those children can sometimes spend the night. So the obvious, you know, the obvious ones are people who work emergency services, who are nurses, who are um, overnight cleaning people. How many times do you drive by an office and they're being cleaned at eleven o'clock at night? How many times have we needed to go to the the twenty four hour pharmacy? And so, really, it is so it is you know the obvious ones, nurses, paramedics, but it's the it's the the folks at Target who have to restock. Right? It's the folks when they get double time when the garden center opens at Lowe's and they're working 15 hour days and they have to work overnight because that's when the plants are delivered. And so when we look around your community and look at what our retail economy has become, it is just in time and it's not just kind of scheduled overnight shifts. It's that you're either staying or you're losing your job because there's 10 other people who want your job behind you, right? So it, it is everywhere in our economy and so we have to create the systems and support that families need based on our real economy, not the economy that we had in
2: 1954.
0: At the risk of being heavy-handed, we have a child care support system that only supports parents who are working or training, but making below a certain level. If you make more than that, you're totally on your own for child care, and likely to pay way, way more than 10% of your family income for childcare. So a family is bizarrely incentivized not to make more money. Because if they do, their actual take-home pay will plummet when they're in a full-pay situation for childcare. And there's a whole swath of jobs that are, for all intents and purposes, off limits to people with children because of the shift requirements. That makes it really hard to get on better economic footing. And this isn't even taking into account our earlier conversation with Carrie Thomas on the transportation snarl of getting to work and getting kids where they need to be. Nyman mentioned something important when talking about the cliff that you might have missed if you weren't listening really closely.
1: Right. So you're not really engaging in a high quality early childhood setting. Quality is a big deal when it comes to child care. This is one of those places where quality really does matter. Um, It matters in a third grade teacher. It matters in a high school teacher. It matters most importantly in an early childhood teacher, right? In your child care provider. And what we have to reinforce that is incredible levels of brain science that have come out in the last 10 or 20 years that is really finally starting to penetrate into our policy arena. And I think that there are really strong advocates out there that are taking that data and really translating that into how do we create programs and supports for families. We're really starting to think about quality Quality and how do we incent quality? And the problem is is we sometimes then don't want to pay for quality in order to get the outcomes for kids that they deserve and we want as an economy. And there's a recent uh, Academy of Sciences study that said that to fully, fully fund a high-quality early care and education system in this country is going to cost us $53 billion. You know, I think that, that we have to think about the... the not just capital infrastructure, but human infrastructure. And what is it, where is our economy going, right? We can see all the time, five years out from robotic car, you know, self-driving cars and robots that can mow a lawn or whatever. And who do we think the workforce is gonna be that's gonna that's going sustain that economy? You go to the Quad Cities and you talk to John Deere, they have a hiring crisis. They have a hiring crisis because they can't find enough qualified applicants to pass their entrance, their basic entrance exam to be hired at the on the factory floor, right? We have a crisis in our military because we can't find enough people that qualify to be enlisted in the military. We have a real problem in this country. Like we, are, we, might be, we might think that we're the greatest nation on earth, but we're not making the right investments. And so I'm not really sure how many data points more are going to have to come out to say, let's start investing in the human population and the human infrastructure. And if the younger we start, the greater our returns are going to be.
0: Other policy organizations place the cost of childcare even higher, especially if we're talking about universal access. So there's a lot on childcare. It's a good thing I have some really fantastic interfaith panelists to help us think through these issues from a
3: religious wisdom perspective. I'm Lauren Henderson. I am a rabbi at a community called Mishkan Chicago, which is a Jewish community here.
2: And I'm Changiz Geula. I am a Baha'i, a member of the Baha'i faith. And I was asked by the governing body of the Baha'is of Chicago to be here and uh, represent the Baha'is of Chicago.
0: In, in each of your traditions, what is the role or value of children? What, what do children bring to a tradition? And how are we instructed to care for them or treat them in our traditions?
3: I think in the Jewish tradition, I can't claim to speak on behalf of all Jews everywhere, but in my understanding, one of the first, perhaps the first commandment in the Torah, in our sacred text, is be fruitful and multiply. There is this idea that we're not here just for ourselves. We're here to um, to build a, a people and to have kids and to kind of expand through the world in that way. And I think a sense that that's not just for like more population growth but a sense that kids bring this reflection on the faith that each generation of subsequent jews is going to refine and improve the faith it's not just about the way that the torah described how judaism should be practiced three thousand years ago but that every generation is going to be evolving that and so education is integral and questioning the faith is integral
0: and and related to that um, whose responsibility is it
3: to care for children? So primarily parents. Um, the There is this coming of age ritual in Judaism called becoming a bar or bat mitzvah. Um, and up until that point, the parents are seen up until age 13 or 12 for girls, parents are seen as the primary person responsibility, responsible for their kids. Um, but after that, there's this blessing that they say that basically is translatable to "Blessed is the one who has freed me from the obligation to care for this person in the world." <laughs> you know, which is like a joke when you're looking at 13-year-olds. You're like, you are not yet ready to be saddled with all adult responsibilities, but kind of a sense that at that point they are sort of morally capable of making choices um, and and also like reflecting what Judaism is to a greater society. But, but in the home, the primary responsibility of, of rearing kids falls to the parents.
0: And how about in Baha'i? What is the role of children? Are they of value?
2: Well, they're actually the bedrock of the community in one sense. Baha'u'llah in his writings has uh, mentioned that one of the goals of humanity is to carry forward an ever-advancing civilization, hmm. meaning that with each generation— The civilization will advance more, and this advancement is not possible without the next generation, essentially. Uh, For this reason, in the Baha'i faith, education actually has a very pivotal role, Uh, particularly education of children, and not only in the type of education we usually talk about, right, science and math and all that. Uh, according to the Baha'i faith, and I believe it's really common in all religions, the type of education that is perhaps even more important is character development, Mm -hmm. education of qualities. (laughs) We call spiritual qualities like love and justice and lack of prejudice and uh, being merciful and kind, all of those qualities that are really the bedrock of any successful civilization. So these this type, if you will, character education, education of virtues and qualities is perhaps even more important, if not as important, of educating ourselves, of course, in uh, science and reading and math and uh, allowing the civilization to carry forward. So on that
0: topic of advancing civilization and and seeing a potential future, Uh, Neiman talks a little bit about this this future when we will have self-driving cars, right? That this is a, a technology advance and we can see that in the future. What do our traditions push us to think about in terms of what the future of human civilization could be? Not the future of technology, but the quality of what it could be in terms of how we care for one another and how we foster families and how we support people in our community. What kind of imagination do our faith traditions give us in that realm?
3: So one of the prayers that we end every service with in the Jewish tradition is called Aleinu, which means it's up to us. This is how my Mm -hmm. friends have been translating recently. It's on us. And it's on us to kind of bring this imagined messianic era into being. And the final line of the prayer is, and on that day, God will be one in God's name one. And the way I understand that, I think, in accordance with my own theology, is that we're working toward a world and we're imagining a world constantly through prayer and through study where we don't see ourselves as fundamentally separate from one another, um, that even though there are distinct individuals and distinct families and separate groups, that those distinctions are to some degree false. Mm. Um, I'm kind of more of a mystic at heart. and, And along those lines, there is this fundamental oneness that connects all of us. And you could call that God, you could call that energy, power, whatever you choose. But that's the kind of future that that my Judaism at least is trying to build in the world? And how would we relate to one another if those walls were dropped? And Mm -hmm. how would we care for one another if we didn't see ourselves as separate?
2: Yeah, very much uh, similar. But one of the central principles, actually, of the Baha'i faith is the oneness of humanity. Uh, Regardless of background, religion, race, economic status, we are brothers and sisters. And the vision that all religions have given is that actually eventually this unity of the human race will be realized. And Baha'u'llah teaches that actually it's within our reach. We are getting there very slowly and uh, we are rebelling, if you will, here and there because we don't want to change. But this change is inevitable. Uh, When we imagine just a few decades ago uh, how the world was connected, and now, I mean, it's really this advance. is very clear. The world is uniting, but this oneness of humanity is a principle that guides every aspect of other Baha'i principles in that it's really a spiritual unity. It's not that physically we are the same. We are not. But spiritually, we all come from the same God, and therefore we are all in his sight. There is no distinction of race or sex or gender or uh, nationality and all of those things. So, from that standpoint, the vision that Bahá'u'lláh gives, and he actually in his writings very clearly indicates that the age for the unification of the human race has come. And we are advancing in that direction. Uh, And the advance is not towards uniformity. Yeah. It's towards unity, mm. unity mm. in diversity, yeah. meaning that every group in the on the planet, every people's has a contribution to make to the whole and must be allowed to make that contribution mm. so huh. that we can all benefit and build this civilization. So in reality, you know, those programs I was talking about that Baha'is throughout the world are trying to empower everyone. It's in this sense that everyone, regardless of where they live, it can be in the remotest islands. They have a contribution to make to humanity towards this unification of the entire human race. And of course, we need systems that make that uh accessible and possible, and when you look at it, we are building a lot of these systems, but then sometimes there is resistance, sometimes there isn't. Mm -hmm. Some systems we are learning, obviously, as we go along. Some systems don't work, so we have to get rid of them. Others, so this is a process that humanity is going through, but Baha'is are very much committed to help in any way they can, to spiritualize that process based on this principle of the oneness of mankind.
0: I want to pick up on the systems statement in just a second. But Christianity has a similar concept that we are moving towards uh, the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, many of my uh, forebears in Christianity thought that each of their times was the time in which Uh it was happening and were very disappointed when it didn't happen. (laughs) But uh, we we continue to think that we are moving towards the time of, of God's kingdom in this place. Um, but but to the the, the concept of systems, th- there are systems and structures and things that we have within our very real physical world right now uh, that do present some barriers. And Nyman talks about how there there are not jobs that are available to some parents because of their work schedules, and and, and how there are people who are being left out of our economy. And I know that within the, the Christian Holy Scriptures, there's this adage of whatever you do for one of uh, the least of these you do for me. And if you were to give a, a child a glass of water, that would be the same as how you were treating your God. Mm. And, and are there similar or complementary things within your traditions about children and people on the margins and how we are to treat them?
2: You know, there is actually a phrase that Baha'u'llah has said which is very similar. This is really, you know, the spiritual thread of religion yeah. runs through all religions. Yeah. And this is yeah. something the Baha'is believe in the principle of progressive revelation that God has uh. given all of these religions. It's not, you know, it differs because of the time, not because of the core of the principles. And Baha'u'llah has said that he who educated uh, another child is as though he has educated my own children. Mm. So the same type of principle, but if we think of the principle of oneness of mankind, it means that no child can be left behind, right? If we are truly going to get to that principle, it doesn't mean that we are practicing that unity yet, but the principle is there. So within the Baha'i community, there are structures that would allow for attention to be given to anyone who for any reason, may actually not be able to get educated or uh, economically not benefit. Uh, The Baha'i community is organized through elected representative bodies throughout the world. There is no priest in the Baha'i faith. We only have bodies of people. There are nine for now in each city and nationally and internationally. There are three levels. And these bodies can come together and make decisions collectively. Individually, they have no power, the members. But these bodies are actually charged with the welfare of everyone in the community. And eventually, that welfare is not just restricted to the Baha'is, right? When they say community, they don't mean just the community of Baha'is. It's the community. Now, because of the, you know, the Baha'i faith is relatively new. It's growing. The numbers may be small in some cities, so that that influence is limited. This whole administrative structure yeah. has come with the function of making sure what you mentioned is in the fringes. We don't have anybody like that. But more importantly, that everyone is educated, not just the more privileged and that education uh, can be afforded. One of the principles, one of the teachings of Baha'u'llah is that you know it's possible that parents cannot afford, in some instances, to educate their children. It is their responsibility because they're parents. But if they cannot do it, this administrative body is charged with paying for the education of that child, making sure if the parents mm. can pay and they right. are not, get the money from them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if they... Uh, don't have the funds, then yeah. the community is responsible to make sure that the child is educated.
3: On that point, in the Talmud, in this compendium of oral wisdom that's been passed down in Jewish tradition, there's a passage that talks about what are parents' obligations to children? And so this was you know, coming from very patriarchal times, so it's what are the father's obligations to the son? But I think it could be extrapolated One would hope more broadly, is. I hope. Yeah. And it says that a father's obligation to his son or his children are to circumcise him and to, uh, and to redeem him and to teach him Torah, wisdom, to get him married and to teach him a trade. Um, and some say to teach him to swim also. So you could have lots of commentary about that. But then the Talmud is a very dialectical process. So then one rabbi responds and says, it's not just that the obligation is to teach him a trade. Actually, any father who does not teach his son a trade teaches him banditry. basically teaches him like to be a criminal. And the Talmud responds and says, "That's crazy. That's like a total extrapolation. He says, okay, it's it's as if he's teaching him, Criminality and criminal behavior, because if this child has no profession to support themselves through, they're going to obviously resort to other tactics to stay alive and make ends meet. And I just think this is like an, an incredible statement mm-hmm. about the causes and and effects of of poverty and of and of crime and that we can see from the outset, and I think you can even expand this beyond just a parent's obligation to children. Like we as a society have an obligation to provide our next generation with the kind of education and tools and resources so they can go out and get real jobs. Um, and to, to Nyman's point, like to relate to the workforce that we have right now, not the one that existed 50 years ago, um, and, and our society has to set up structure for that. Otherwise, we're just going to be falling behind. And, and when we see crime and when we see people just trying to make ends meet um, by any means necessary, we, we won't have the ability to do that.
0: And that's our show. Thanks to Ceci Nyman. You can learn more about Everthrive Illinois at everthriveil.com and about Illinois Action for Children at actforchildren.org. Thanks to Lauren Henderson and Chengiz Gayula for their wisdom and generosity. To the folks at the WBEZ studios in Chicago for their recording help, and David Dalt for editing and production assistance. This episode marks the final segment in our season on economic and workforce issues in Chicago. Funding for this season of the Holy Holy podcast was generously provided by the Leadership Education at Duke Divinity Innovation Grant. If you have thoughts or ideas about the show, please contact me through the website, holyholypodcast.com. It's been an honor to think through these issues together. Until next time, peace be with you.